Let's continue in prayer together. God, you are our great God and King. And we thank you that we can live in a nation that has many freedoms to recognize that there are no earthly kings that stand above you, that you are the mighty, majestic king who reigns over all the universe. You're worthy of our worship and our praise. We pray that you would help us today as we continue in your word, as we look deciphering the truth that you would have for us, that you would, by the power of your spirit, give us insight and clarity of thought, that you would convict us in our areas of sin, that you would encourage us toward ongoing faithfulness and righteousness. For the sake of your glory, we pray. Amen. In 2005, Christianity Today wrote a brief account of the life of Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce was an extreme version of a post-World War II evangelical. He was entrepreneurial, he was energetic, he was independent, and he was out to evangelize the world. And so in 1947, the young Youth for Christ evangelist started on his way to China for the sake of holding some evangelistic meetings, and he only had enough money to get as far as Honolulu, Hawaii, That was the way they did it back then in Youth for Christ. They believed firmly that God's workers should burn out, not rust out. And so eventually he made it to China where thousands of people put their faith in Christ through his evangelistic rallies. Hunger was everywhere, communism was hammering at the door, and Pierce later wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible these haunting words. He said, Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And so dragging a movie camera across Asia, China was soon closed as a country, and Pierce came back to the United States showing films and pictures to church audiences across America, asking them to help the children by adopting one of them. And... In 1950, he incorporated this personal crusade of his into a larger enterprise, which became known as World Vision. In 1959, nine years later, one journalist wrote of Bob Pierce that Pierce cannot conceal his true emotions. He seems to me to be one of the few naturally, uncontrollably honest men, one of the most I've ever met. When Franklin Graham asked him how to shake people out of their complacency, Pierce's response was that they had to become part of the suffering. He said, I literally felt the child's blindness, the mother's grief. It's all too real to me when I stand in front of an audience. It's not something that can be faked. Pastor Richard Halverson wrote that Pierce prayed more earnestly and importantly than anyone else I have ever known. It was as though prayer burned within him. Bob Pierce functioned with a broken heart. But that same intensity led to his downfall. Pierce was known as a person who often had an ungoverned temper, and he frequently clashed with his board at World Vision. He traveled as much as 10 months out of the year to great suffering for his very own family. 
he once quipped that he had made an arrangement with God. He said, I've made an arrangement with God that I'll take care of his little helpless lambs overseas if he'll take care of mine at home. In 1963, 13 years after World Vision had been founded, he had his first nervous breakdown. For nine months, he almost disappeared, preferring to travel the world by himself than to go home and actually be with his family. And in 1967, he resigned from World Vision, bitter at those who he felt were interfering with his organization. In 1968, in a goodbye tour around the world, he received a phone call from his daughter Sharon asking him to come home. And he refused, saying that he wanted to extend his trip and spend some more time in Vietnam. His wife Lorraine went home immediately to be with Sharon, but she arrived too late. And by the time that she had arrived, Sharon had already tried to commit suicide. Later that year, she tried again and was successful. By then, Pierce was hospitalized in Switzerland he would stay there for over a year. He was treated with insulin and other drugs. And the following year after he was released, he linked up with a world hunger organization that was small at the time and would later become known as Samaritan's Purse. In 1970, Bob Pierce filed for separation from his wife and left her and the rest of their family. And his daughter Mary Lee wrote that his memory was badly crippled and his mind was frequently unclear. And just once, in September of 1978, the family was able to gather together for an evening of some kind of reconciliation. Four days later, Bob Pierce died. His work went on. World Vision is a global enterprise. Samaritan's Purse, the same. Bigger than he could have ever imagined. But what do you make of a man like Bob Pierce? I mean, in, in one sense, this man was involved and did incredible and even miraculous things. Things that people could not do of their own accord. Things where thousands upon thousands of people came to faith in Jesus through his revivalistic or evangelistic rallies. Where thousands more were equipped for the work of global ministry through World Vision and Samaritan's Purse. I mean, he was on the front lines of amazing God work. And at the very same time, his choices led to tremendous suffering for those that God called him to care for the most, his very own family. He essentially abandoned them. And as a result, his marriage crumbled, his daughter committed suicide, and his family disintegrated. What do you make of those choices? How do you reconcile the two? I mean, God uses very imperfect people, doesn't he? <laughs> we see that in us. We see that in Bob Pierce. And, and yet at the same time, we have to hope that there is a way to serve the Lord without self-destructing. And in many ways, his story is a contemporary picture of many other stories that we hear from people who are serving the Lord. And it points us back to a biblical story in Judges chapter 10 and 11 and 12. It's the story of Jephthah. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open that Bible to Judges chapter 10. It's found on page 210 of the Pew Bible. 
And this story, the story of Jephthah, is a story of a man that God uses to do something incredible, absolutely miraculous, while at the same time, in his private world, his selfish ambition is beginning to take over, and it leads to self-destruction. It's a unique contrast. It's, a, it's, a, it's incredible tension that we see in this man, and it's a tension that we're seeing in growing sense as we go through the book of Judges, if you're New here today for the first time or just been here a couple weeks, you're coming into the middle of this series of the book of Judges where God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, are taking hold of the land that God has given them. There's repeated battle sequences that are happening and we see this cycle of sin that people are involved in and the judges themselves are involved in, the military leaders. And now it's moving from a cyclical dynamic actually to a downward spiral. The stories from here on out in the book get harder they get harder to understand they get harder to teach and they get harder to listen to Jephthah is maybe the first of them he looks to be a man of selfish ambition and if we were to define ambition ambition is an earnest desire for achievement or recognition look with me at chapter 10 verse 17 of Judges and this is what it says The Ammonites, that's a foreign nation, the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel, that's God's people, they came together and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all of the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected all around Jephthah and went out with him. And after a time... The Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be the witness between us if we do not do as you say. And so Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. And the people made him head and leader over them And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. So what we see here is a story with multiple parties involved that are all looking out for their own interests in selfish ambition. And selfish ambition is going to lead them to selfish or poor leadership. We see this man named Jephthah, a mighty warrior he's referred to, and yet he is a son of a prostitute, and as such, he's driven out of the tribe. 
He goes and lives by himself in this land of Tob, another village or another area. And as a child or a young man, was either adopted or just lived with other young men. His brothers had disinherited him. They looked around. In their own self-interest, they said, there's only so much to go around by way of the inheritance. If we can eliminate one more piece of this puzzle, that means all the rest of us get more. So off Jephthah went. And as time goes on, they, this tribe of Gilead is going to go to war against the Ammonites, a foreign nation. And the leaders of Gilead are seeking who will lead them and who will be their head. And, and they seek to use Jephthah for their own purposes. And we know that for two reasons. One, because they go after this son of a prostitute. They go seek him out. They've heard of his reputation as a mighty warrior. And they say, hey, we could use that guy. And so they go and seek him. And then number two, when they seek him, they actually seek to give him less than they would if he were a full-blooded Gileadite. Now, how do I know that? It's a subtle nuance, but you'll see it in the text if you look with me. Verse 18 of chapter 10, the people are all wondering, the situation is bad, and they say, who will be the one that will rise up and fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over us. Then they go to Jephthah, chapter 11, verse 6, and they say to him, come and be our leader. Now, it might not seem to be that big of a difference between a head and a leader in our English rendition, but there actually is a pretty significant difference. It's the difference between being the ruler and being a general. They're wondering, the one that will come and, and, and lead the armies, he'll be our head. But then they go to Jephthah and say, hey, we've heard about you. Will you be a general? And he calls their hypocrisy what it is. What do you mean you want me to come and be with you? I mean, you didn't want me before. Why do you want me now? And yet... Jephthah has his own selfish ambition. And so, after some negotiation, he agrees with them, verse 8, that he will be their head and their ruler, both. Or he will be their head and their leader. And he, his selfish ambition is displayed in that he desires so much to be restored to his own tribe, to his own people, that he's willing to deal with these crooked rulers. Not only is he willing to deal with them, but he's also willing to be the head. And as we've talked about multiple times over the series, there's only supposed to be one head in Israel. And that's the person of God himself. And you'll notice in this first scene of the story, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of them seeking God, no mention of God raising up a judge as we've seen earlier in the book. God is a silent witness relegated to watching as his people pursue their own desires. Selfish ambition drives the Gileadites and selfish ambition drives Jephthah. They truly, truly deserve each other in this way. And as we think about that, it's easy to make a contemporary leap to our culture today, insofar as in our time, raw opportunists are often looked at in our society as people of great success stories. People who will win at all costs. 
people who will advance their own careers while even leaving their own families and children in the dust. People who excel in public areas of giftedness and yet all the while privately living sinful lives of selfish ambition. These people are often held in great esteem in our society. We can see it even at times in churches or in ministries. People who have incredible public gifts and while pursuing their own selfish ambitions become something less than they appear on the outside. When someone functions or serves for reputation or personal gain, rather than for the Lord himself, this constitutes danger. And what we will begin to see here in the story of Jephthah is that the raw opportunists that function apart from God will bring upon themselves more trouble and more heartache, and they should not be lauded as heroes in the story. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 tells us this, right? That as we become members of the family of God, that we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, that in humility we are to consider others better than ourselves, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ. The other interesting application here, of course, is that in the story, that God functions very passively in the whole situation. Now that, at first glance, might not seem to be that big of a deal, but remember who the main character of the Bible is. God. Remember who the main character of many of the stories of the Old Testament is. God. God is repeatedly seen as a primary actor. He is seen as the one of divine initiation. He is seen, seen as the one of incredible, miraculous deliverance. And here he is nowhere to be found. The silence is eerie, in a sense. And it warns us, what we will see in Judges again and again, is that sometimes there comes a point when God will just simply sit back and allow us to reap what we sow. That we reject him and we reject him and we reject him and we harden ourselves against him and he will say, for a season at least, okay, have it your way. The story continues. When you look at verses 12 through 28 with me, I'm not going to read it all, but let me summarize it for you. That there is... Jephthah now becomes the head of his people. He is interacting with the leaders of the Ammonites, and there is a dispute over the land. The Ammonites felt that Israel wrongly took their land. Jephthah corrects this history of events, and he recognizes that through the history of events that the Lord had given Sion and the Amorites into their hands, verse 21 and verse 23, and he concludes after this interaction with him Verse 27 and 28, look at it with me. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you, this is Jephthah to the Ammonites, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Now we will see how selfish ambition leads to both incredible victory and incredible tragedy as the story continues. It says, verse 29, And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. 
And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aor and the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as abel Karamim, with a great blow. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. He said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And so she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. Selfish ambition leads to both victory and tragedy. If you look with me at verse 29, it says that the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. This is the first time that God becomes the active participant in the story. And the spirit of the Lord descending upon him is a, a wonderful Old Testament concept. We know that in the Old Testament that followers of God were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but rather the spirit would come upon them for specific tasks. For specific times. And so sometimes the spirit of the Lord would come upon a prophet and he would prophesy. Others it would come upon a leader and he would discern. And other times it would come upon a military leader. And as a result, he would have tremendous power and even victory. This is the same spirit of the Lord that descended on one of the first judges, Othniel. It descended on the judge of Gideon. And despite Jephthah's continued selfish actions, God is still merciful and engages to use him for his higher purposes. It's amazing that God descends the Spirit of the Lord upon him. It's wonderful. It's majestic. It's powerful. But if that's true, then why the vow? Why does Jephthah say to God, God, if you deliver me, then I will sacrifice in a burnt offering whatever comes out of my house when I get home? I mean, vows were not normally required in the Bible. And when they were made, they were expected to be followed, unless, unless it brought a person into sin. 
and then they were released from the vow. Here, Jephthah makes a vow, and I think what he's doing is he's making a vow of desperation. He's standing on the edge of the battlefield, and he's looking to his left, and he's looking to his right, and he's knowing his own shortcomings, and he's saying, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. And he looks across, and he says, they look bigger, stronger, mightier. I'm going to throw a Hail Mary out right here. God, if you help us to get through this, then I will sacrifice to you whatever comes out of my house. I mean, after all, he's desperate. This Jephthah realized that if God failed him, then he would lose everything that he had just gained. He had just been brought back into his tribe. He had just ascended to a place of leadership. He just now has incredible reputation. He just now has power and authority. And if they lose this battle, then back to Tob, this guy goes. Cast out again. The lowly son of a prostitute. The people would abandon him and all would be lost. And so he makes a vow. But what was the intention of the vow? I mean, was he just so desperate that he hasty and rash and some of these things just popped out of his mouth? I don't think so. I think what's happening here is that Jephthah is relying on his experiences and seeing how other peoples have made vows, even the people of the land. People of the land make vows to their gods. They offer human sacrifices to them as a sign of their commitment. And so Jephthah while in one sense doing an incredible work of the Lord and experiencing the power of God, the Spirit of God upon him, at the very same time then turns around and engages in what would be a pagan practice of making this vow and offering a human sacrifice. God expressly forbids it, of course, as you can imagine earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. He says this, The Lord says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fires to their gods. Jephthah is taking a shotgun approach to victory. He is saying, that is the end, and I don't care what the means are to get there. The ends justify the means. I wonder if you've ever done that. I wonder how often we do the same. That we say, I see the goal, I see what I want to accomplish. God, if what it takes is me surrendering to you, submitting to you, being faithful to you, then I'll do that. But maybe it might just only take this over here. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do this as well, and we'll just see, what, see how it works out. I wonder if we sometimes make these oaths to God, these sayings that we convince ourselves are true. Sayings like Bob Pierce convinced himself would be true. I made a deal with God, he said, that if I take care of his little lambs overseas, then he'll take care of my family at home. When clearly, that wasn't a vow that God honored, (laughs) at least in the sense that he meant it. I wonder how often we take a shotgun approach where we say, I don't care what the means are, I will justify the ends. And it might be quiet and it might be subtle. It might be the outside looks really good, but on the inside we're cajoling, we're positioning, we're trying to press 
forward regardless of how it happens. And we notice here that when Jephthah makes the vow, God is noticeably silent. I may have told you the story before about the gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took his enormous carrot to the local king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched. And he discerned the man's heart. And so as the farmer was turning to leave, the king said to him, wait a minute. Clearly you are a good steward of the soil and I own the plot of land that is just adjacent to yours. I want to give it to you so that you may farm that plot of land as well. And the farmer, delighted to see this gift freely given, took it and was amazed and went home rejoicing. And and while all this is happening, one of the noblemen of the king's court was observing, and he thought to himself, all that for a carrot? What if I were to give the king something much, much greater? And so the next day, he comes parading into the palace, and behind him was a beautiful, large, black stallion. And he said, my king, my lord, this is the greatest stallion I have ever bred or will ever breed. And I give it to you as a sign of my love and respect. But the king discerned the man's heart. And so he looked at him and he said, thank you. And he took the stallion and dismissed the nobleman. And as the nobleman began to walk away, very perplexed, the king stopped him to explain. And he said, you see why you're perplexed. Because the farmer was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. Jephthah's vow was a way of invoking God's name to accomplish his own purposes. He was using God. His selfish ambition cost him the innocent daughter that he had in his home. And there's a fine line, hear this very carefully, there's a fine line between pursuing the works of God and pursuing the works of God for the purposes of God. You can go through this life and pursue a lot of good generally godly types of things, but if you're pursuing it for your own gain, look out, you might have outward victory but inward tragedy. If you are pursuing the works of God for the purposes of God, then we see something very, very different. Don't let your godly ambition turn into selfish ambition because selfish ambition leads to self-destruction. That's the warning. The warning of the text is just very plainly, don't let your godly ambition turn into selfish ambition because selfish ambition leads to self-destruction. And you notice that this this whole story is centered around a battle. But the battle gets just two verses. It's a lead up to a battle. The battle happens, and it's almost nondescript. He went there, there was a great blow, he subdued the people, and it was over. But the point of the story is about the vow and the things that happen after the vow. And so now that the battle is won in just two verses, we close with looking at the beginning of chapter 12, and that concludes this story. We see now 
in chapter 12, verse 1, that the men of Ephraim, this is another brother tribe, were called to arms. And they crossed to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, why did you cross over and to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when you called, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life into my own hand, and I crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And so what's happening is that this brother tribe, the tribe of Ephraim, is jealous. They see the great victory that happened. They're jealous. This is the second time in just a couple chapters that they pulled this stunt where they want to be a part of the action and part of the glory but have none of the work. They did the same thing in chapter 8 with Gideon when they went to him in jealousy. And as a result now, selfish ambition from the tribe of Ephraim is Engaging in selfish ambition from the tribe of Gilead, who's being led by the selfish ambition of a man named Jephthah. And you can imagine what begins to happen. They begin to fight against each other. And it says in verse 4 that Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and they fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because he said to them, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. So the battle is happening. The people of God are now fighting against themselves because they're selfish. They are again their own worst enemy. God is silent. And the story is capped off in verses 5 and on when it says that they captured the fords of the Jordan. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. We might say only six years And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city of Gilead. The capstone of the story, Israel is his own worst enemy. Again, they're fighting against each other. And there's this really funny interaction between the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. It would be equivalent of saying to someone from New England, you're entering into Ohio. Are you from Boston? And they say, no, no, I'm not from Boston. Well, then say, park the car in Harvard Yard. Park the car in Harvard Yard. Slaughter him. He's clearly from Boston. And the people of God suffer. They're at war against themselves. Because they let godly ambition turn to selfish ambition. And selfish ambition leads to self-destruction. Don't let your godly ambition turn to selfish ambition because that leads to self-destruction. So in conclusion, I, I consider the tragic nature of this story and I consider the obvious warning to all of us against functioning in a life of just surely selfish ambition. And another reality comes to mind. 
It comes to mind that God remains silent through much of this story and what they were going to do, they were going to do regardless of what God said. They had hardened themselves against him and he backs off for the time being. He allowed them to do it. He remains silent. But you know what? I'm so glad that he didn't remain silent forever. That God allows them to experience the consequences of their actions for that instance or for that season, but he didn't stay a passive observer forever. I'm so glad that God isn't simply out for his own selfish gain, but instead he cares deeply for the gain of others, even for the gain of his own creatures. And so when you think about the gospel implications of a story like this, you have to take a big step back and you look at the whole history of God, the whole redemptive history of God, and you say that God does not allow us to wallow in our mess forever. That he loves us too much to sit back and to watch us self-destruct. And yet, he does, he does often allow us to experience the consequences of our action for a season with the aim that we would then recognize that our selfish ambition leads to self-destruction and turn back to the one who has greater ambitions and greater powers to save God himself. Anytime in this story, you can imagine how Jephthah, the Gileadites, the Ephraimites, if they had humbled themselves before God and made him their head, how none of this would have happened because in God's love for his people, his grace so glorious is found. And the truth of the matter is that no matter how far off you are, no matter how much selfish ambition you've been engaging in, no matter how you structure your life around your personal gain, which all of us have the temptation to do, that there is always a way back for you as well. To be restored into relationship with God, it's the wonderful truth of the gospel that he is there with open arms and love, with grace and mercy, so glorious for his people. So we think about the gospel, we recognize that on the first Sunday of every month in our church that we remember the gospel in a very unique way that the Bible commands us to, and that is by taking of the Lord's Supper together. The physical signs of Christ's body and blood broken, that you and me would not only be reminded of the truths that we were the people who are functioning in selfish ambition, but beyond that, God is the one who saves us from ourselves. <laughs> that no matter how much we desire to be faithful, there's no measure by which we can ultimately reach his perfection. And so he comes and he gets us. And he says, become one of my children. Be forgiven of your sins. Put faith in this son of mine, Jesus, who sacrificed himself for you. And in doing so, you now have unique access to the person of God in an ongoing way. Hebrews chapter four talks about this. It says in Hebrews 4.14, that since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted. We might even say even tempted with selfish ambition, as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace 
to help in the time of need. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, know that this is a physical sign of the saving gospel of Jesus, that it reminds us, it recalls to mind our sin and the salvation that he offers. If you are here today and you call Christ your Savior, then you can take this rejoicing. And as we prepare for the supper, I would encourage you to spend the time that the ushers are passing out the elements, not only confessing your sin, particularly your sins of self-ambition, considering the ways in which you structure your life around your own personal gain, but also to rejoice in the fact that even though we were selfish and are, that God saves us anyway. So let's pray together. Father God, you are a wonderful and loving Savior. We thank you for Jesus, who sympathizes with our temptations because they're not uncommon to him, and yet has shown himself to be righteous, that in the ultimate act of sacrifice, not of selfish gain, of sacrifice, that he would die for us, that we might live in him. Hear our prayers now as we confess and as we remember and as we worship.